following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Easter. Um, We are thrilled to be joined to our Lord Jesus Christ, who is not dead, but he is risen. That's your chance to say he is risen indeed, that famous old creed. Uh, Let's turn to 1 Peter 1. Uh, We'll read our passage and then pray together. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray together. Our risen Lord, we love you. We long for the day that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We believe that God has highly exalted you and bestowed on you the name that is above every name. You, Lord God, have done this so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We believe these things and we say these things with but we rehearse them over and over again because our hearts are weak and fickle. Lord, we're continually tempted to trust other things than you, other names, including our own. We sin. Lord, thank you for your presence, your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Thank you for the Bible instructing us in righteousness and pointing us to you alone. We need to be instructed in the truth We need our hearts to be turned to see you in all glory, and we want to live in accordance with that. So, Lord, help us as we open your word this morning. Would you give us the grace we need to receive your word with thanksgiving, and would you change us, your people? Would you change us to be more like Jesus Christ, the image of your dear son? It's in his name we pray, amen. Well, again, I say good morning to everyone, and uh, we wish you a very happy Easter, a resurrection day. We know that uh, when the church gathers and meets together on the Lord's Day, each week we celebrate the resurrection. It's not just once a year, but of course it's also good. It's a good thing when many across the globe recognize that this day is as, as, as a holiday. It's something that we ought to take advantage of. It's a good thing. A time of year that everyone else at least thinks that they're celebrating Easter too. And that's fine. Um, But we are very glad that we are not joined together or celebrating bunnies or eggs or pastel colors. And that's all great. We're thankful for all those things. Praise the Lord. Um, But that's not what we are joining to do. As Christians, we celebrate something that's eternally significant something that's true, something that's not myth, something that really happened. As Christians, our celebration is grounded in the real historical event of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. We look back on those events in wonder, and especially as we consider from Good Friday, with deep emotion and recognize all that went on. In our very limited sense, we understand the great pain and agony that our Lord went through as we look forward to the resurrection on the Lord's day. After Jesus experienced the horror of the Passion Week, after he was rejected and beaten, after he was suffered and eventually came to the end, he cried, it is finished. 
and he died. Our Savior died. You know the story. Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. He was granted the body, and he took him to his own new tomb. He wrapped him, and he placed him within the tomb. As they do this, of course, they roll this enormous stone to cover him up to make sure no one would rob the grave and make sure no scandal would happen, but to make sure he could be sealed until they could come back and properly make sure he was prepared for burial. They did this, again, so that no one messes Jesus' body, but they would come back. It's at this point that all of the hope seems to be gone. The one who claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of God, is dead. He died on the tree. He was killed, wrapped up, put in a tomb. Mark writes this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early in the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from this entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. Who is crucified? He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. We find out that indeed Christ had risen from the grave. He was truly dead. But on the third day, he defeated death and resurrected from the grave. Soon after this, of course, he meets his disciples and they worship him. And they realize that he had risen from the grave. And he ascends to the right hand of the now enthroned the king over death. What a story. I mean, what a story, a joy for us who could not pay for our own sin to find out that Jesus, the only true hero, has done it for us. But not only that, that he has overcome sin and overcome death through his resurrection. We love this story, and rightly so. It's a beautiful story of life emerging from the despair of death. We together as believers proclaim the truth and the historicity of the resurrection. By that I mean we believe. We believe that this truly happened, that this was not some sort of exaggeration or metaphor proposed by his disciples after their teacher had died. No, 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 no. We are willing to die for this truth of the resurrection, that it's true, that it happened, that Jesus truly was dead, but that he rose from the grave. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16 and 17, Paul goes as far as to say that if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection isn't true, then our faith is futile, and we are still, get this, are still in our sins. He pins it all on the resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, we don't have justification. We have no salvation. We don't have forgiveness of our sins. And we certainly do not have a new life. Paul tells us in Romans 1.4, 
that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. And this is an important event for us to remember and to believe and even to defend if necessary. But this isn't going to be our main focus for today. It is right and it is good. You guys know that one of the things that I love most about theology is that it is useful. It is not dead. It is meant to be done. It is most meant to react upon and say, if this is true, this is how we live. What we learn about God is meant to change the way that we think, the way that we act, and the way that we love. Our theology should always be consistent with what we say is true. It should always then result in the way that we live our lives according to what we say is true about God. So, what I'm trying to say is that the resurrection is not only true for uh, something to be learned and to know, the resurrection is true and it matters to us in our day-to-day lives as Christians. Of course, it's certainly important as a historical event, uh, but that's because it must be true in order to work. It has to be true. It has to be real if it is going to actually do something for us, for his people. Today, I want us to hear from Peter, a guy who uh, really does know quite a bit about the resurrection of Jesus Christ personally. From what we know, Peter and John were probably the only two disciples who went and saw the empty tomb. And then Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, if you remember this, and one of the key pieces of his sermon is the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he himself witnessed. Peter understood both the historical truth of the resurrection, but he also got how theologically important this was for the rest of the church, for all of time. And because of this, he was able to encourage his fellow Christians as he writes to them in 1 Peter. In the epistle of 1 Peter, we find Peter writing to a people who live in a world where Christianity is still new, still different, still really misunderstood. It's labeled as just a sect of Judaism, really. From what we can tell, there was probably some sporadic persecution that people that that Peter's writing to are experiencing. But more often than that, there's a general ignorance about the true God that's expressed in Jesus Christ. And this leads, of course, to poor treatment of people and Christians, especially as they begin to look very different from the Jews and, of course, very different from their pagan neighbors. It's into this context that Peter writes to encourage those who have forsaken the world and trusted Jesus Christ alone as their Lord. We, uh, we read verse 3 already, but let's go ahead and read it again, and then the next few verses that follow along as well. So let me read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Today my goal isn't to work through every part of this passage in detail, although we would definitely benefit from that, but to help us see that Peter grounds his encouragement to the saints in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want us to hear verse 3 loud and clear and rejoice that we too have a living hope. Peter's exhortation is relevant for those of us who are in Christ, as Paul has told us here and taught us, or taught, teached us, taught us in Ephesians 1. And yet we still are those who are in Christ who live in a sin-cursed world with various trials. The resurrection is going to be the grounds for our hope but I think it's relevant for us and helpful for us to first look at the situation that Peter is speaking into. In verses 6 and 7, Peter is getting honest with these people. He is admitting right up front, knowing that suffering is a part of the Christian experience in a fallen world. He says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Peter is writing to people who <clears throat> go through various trials, sufferings. It is tempting to think that this only means persecution, but this isn't what Peter is saying. He doesn't say just persecutions. Later on in the letter, particularly in chapter 4, Peter is going to expound on the idea that Christians suffer in this life. He even tells them that they shouldn't be surprised that the suffering will come, that they should expect it, and rather they should rejoice that they get to share in Christ's sufferings. But here he keeps it purposefully broad, and in doing so, he speaks to you and me. Our brother Peter helps us understand that it's not just persecution, but in a sense various trials that we would experience within life. We all have various trials, whether it is religious persecution at work or debilitating disease that you might suffer from or the suffering of loneliness or the suffering of being left by a spouse or the suffering that comes from children growing up and leaving and turning their backs on you. Peter recognizes that we are sometimes grieved by various trials but he immediately helps us understand the reasoning for our suffering. Look at verse 7. He says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The suffering of God's people is like the heat of the refiner's fire. Now, many of you have probably heard an analogy like this uh, and familiar with the gold purifying process. But if not, let me just explain why Peter would use this analogy. Gold is a very precious metal. We know that. We want things to be made of gold. We, we talk about streets of gold. We recognize that gold is a very precious metal. It has very many different uses. It's very valuable. And for most of its top applications, it must be pure. It must be by itself, not alloyed with other metals and impurities. 
There are few, uh, few different ways that you can purify gold, but probably the most ancient and most common is by uh, giving it extreme heat, melting it, firing it in the fiery furnace in a sense to melt it down, take out the impurities, and wipe them off the top and skim them off as slag. And of course, this process uh, can't happen until the gold is heated up to very high temperatures. Over a thousand degrees Celsius is what this stuff undergoes. We're talking about blazing hot, and the process burns up certain things that are impure within it, and it also separates other things from that gold. And in short, the refiner's fire for gold is unpleasant and really, really painful. And if you and I were a piece of gold in the refiner's fire, we probably wouldn't like the process of refinement, of purification at all. It would be painful, and it would most certainly come out, we would come out looking very different from what happened when we went into the fire. Peter is saying that when Christians, you and I, go through various trials, their faith, or their faith is tested. It's tried. It is purified. It's put into the heat of the refiner's fire. He's showing us that there is a purpose to all of this, that our faith is not to be destroyed, but to be purified. He says that God uses these trials to strip us from shifting faith, from maybe believing some in God and some in money and some in people and some in ourselves and some in our insurances. No, he does this to strip us of impure faith so that we might be found to result in genuine faith, a faith that is true, a faith that is pure in God and God alone. But even at this point, Peter goes further. He says that these trials are producing a genuine faith in the believer that will result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll be honest, it's very tempting for us to jump right here as good theologians, right, to thinking, of course, praise, honor, and glory, that's to God alone. And of course, we're right to attribute those things to God and know that honor, praise, and glory is to God alone for his worth. But that's not what Peter says. If you wrestle with this text and go ahead and read it over and over, you'll see that the praise, honor, and glory are not attributed to God, but are attributed to us. Wow. I mean, this immediately feels awkward and, and kind of wrong. And like, uh, as someone in our congregation has said, things like this should make the um, theological hairs uh, uh, stand up on the back of our necks. Is Peter right here? I mean, is, are, are maybe are we understanding him rightly? Yes, we are. But let's consider a few things to nuance this answer. Peter isn't giving us an understanding of our own worth, of our value, of our merit. But he is showing that these actions, this genuine faith in Christ alone, is worthy of praise and reward. It will not be the praise of man or the honor that sometimes we experience here on earth from other people saying, good job at this or that. No, this is the praise of God to his saints. He is saying that these trials are for your eternal good and will result in words of praise and honor for believers. We know that glory is not for humans. Unless, of course, as Romans 8.17 tells us, God's glory is to be shared by believers 
in Christ's second coming. We also know that honor is the Lord's alone. But in Romans 2.10, Paul shows that Christ shares this with his people in the end as well. And then, you know, when we consider praise, when it comes to praise, we must consider Jesus' words in Matthew 25. In the parable of the talents, Jesus eventually says these words. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The faithfulness of God's people, the the enduring trust that they have in him alone will result in that wonderful phrase spoken by God, well done, good and faithful servant. In all these instances, the glory, the honor, and praise is God's to give and share with believers. And it is not for now. We do not experience this here, but it is for the future when Christ returns. Therefore, in this passage, Peter is not ascribing worth to you and me. It is not as though God is saying, you're kind of worth something, so we give you some praise, and I'm worth something too. No, that's not what's going on here. Rather, he is saying that our trust in God is worthy of our master's approval. We know enough good theology to know that the ultimate glory is God's alone. But in verse 6 and 7, we are hearing Peter get honest with us, helping us to understand that God is not absent in our struggles. He is intimately involved, refining us, shaping us, removing the junk, and this will result in God's approval of his people. Well done, good and faithful servant. This faith and the resulting life that follows may not look so beautiful and wonderful and praiseworthy to the world around us. In fact, they think it's foolishness. But according to God's evaluation, it is a thing that is worthy of praise, honor, and glory for for believers. So this is the situation of the readers. This is very much our own situation, a time where many of us are experiencing suffering, trials, when we are experiencing various trials that test our faith and purify us. And in this situation, Peter has something to say to these Christians and to you and me. He begins his letter with a short greeting, and then he moves on into this short but beautiful eulogy in verse 3 that praises the Lord, just like Paul did at the beginning of Ephesians. Beginning of verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he, like Paul, quickly moves on to talk to us, to encourage us, with the truths of our spiritual blessings from God, giving us a foundation to work from, reminding us of truth so that we can move forward in obedience and holiness to God. He talks about our salvation, our regeneration, our being born again. In verses 3, 4, and 5, he says this, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Right from the beginning, there is a reminder of God's mercy. 
There's nothing in us that deserved this. No action that we performed that qualified us for God's work of regeneration. Nothing. And so, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? Even here, a brief reading of Peter, we see that Paul and Peter are preaching the same thing. The sovereign, gracious action of our God in the salvation of his church. He goes on to say that God has caused believers to be born again to a living hope. What a curious way to talk about salvation, that they are born again. So far we've talked about election in Ephesians 1, and adoption, and redemption, but this is a, a very different way to speak about salvation. Peter says that God caused us to be born again. He's going to talk more about this when you get down to verse 23. But for now, it might be helpful to consider that Peter is not making this up on his own. This is not Peter's idea. This is Jesus' idea. And some of you know exactly where I'm going. Jesus, in speaking to Nicodemus in John 3, he tells Nicodemus, that this ruler, that he must be born again. And of course, he's not talking about climbing back into his mother's womb, but he's talking about being born of the Spirit. He's helping him understand that he must be born of God if he is ever to enter into the kingdom of God. Peter is speaking about conversion in a way that highlights God's action of begetting, of bringing forth, of birthing us to new life. This isn't just a change of morals. This isn't just a metamorphosis that we're becoming better and better people. This is a new birth, a new life that has begun, that properly recognizes its father and its new direction as a new life. And many of the New Testament writers pick up on this idea and run with it. Of course, James and Paul, and like we just read, of course, John. All understand, all of them understand that a believer has new life in God. And that this is a helpful way for us to understand our relationship with the Father. But Peter goes on, we're born again to a living hope. What is this living hope? And why would Peter talk about it this way? The new birth is not an end in and of itself. Just as in our own context, the birth of a newborn baby is wonderful, is magnificent. And each and every time we see this happen, we rejoice but we also don't think that it ends right there. We look to the future and we look forward that they will, God willing, grow to be a child and that that child will grow to be a teenager and that teenager will grow up to, into maturity as a man or a woman who can function in society as an adult. The true is same here in the new birth. Our conversion is not an end in and of itself but it is a glorious beginning with all the promises of a bright and hopeful future. It makes us aware of a wonderful and greater hope of maturity and consummation as we grow into Him. In this time period, we experience life with trials and hardships and incompleteness. But this is not to say that this is it that this is as good as it gets. Peter says that we've been born again to a future hope, to a bright future, to something that we can expect to happen in the, in the days to come. Peter says that we've been born again to this, and it's not just a random future hope, is it? 
No. Peter calls it a living hope. But why? Why would he choose to use this word, living hope? And you probably know this is where I've been going all morning here with this. Why would Peter encourage these Christians that they have been born again to a living hope? Well, it's probably best for us to just read the verse again. So let's look at it again. Second half of verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The hope that Peter is talking about is certainly a future hope. Yes, of course. But it is a hope that is grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ who overcame death and conquered the grave through his own resurrection. He was dead and now he lives. In other words, Peter is saying that we have hope. Not just that our, our sins are forgiven in some divine ledger somewhere in heaven. No, no, no. But that, yes, that's true, but, but that our sins have been forgiven. We've been born again, and of course we will experience physical death. But because we are in Christ, we, and because of his conquering power, we too will experience the resurrection and eternal life with God. We have a hope that has already been guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is alive. And when we talk about hope, guys, we're not talking about like a positive perspective on the future. We're not talking about like hoping for the best or like we are uh, holy optimists. We're not talking about that, hoping it goes well in that way, as though we're not sure what's going to happen. We are talking about a sure hope, a guaranteed promise. If, if you can look at me and think this through, this is not just hopeful as the way that we hope that Easter will turn out well or that our kids will turn out well. This is something that has been promised to us. This is our sure hope that it is grounded in Jesus Christ and his work, both in his death, but now in his resurrection life. It is sure, it is steady through the life that we experience and see at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been thinking about these words all week uh, and, and wondering how it is that God can give us Christians, who we're still here right now, we're not dead yet, not experiencing the resurrection yet. How can God give us living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? It's a very interesting word that he'd choose there. And I, and I thought back and forth all week long about, you know, Jesus as our example of the resurrection or as Jesus' resurrection as a metaphor used to show us that we too will have a, a lively hope, one of like, it's kind of like his, or that God can raise us up by his power like he raised Jesus. But all of those ideas seem to come up short of what Peter is saying here. He says that our hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This sounds far more personal and connected. And then I began to think about where we've been at in Ephesians 1, understanding the spiritual blessings that Paul is telling us about. I just want you to think for a minute, how do we experience the spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about? Do you remember uh, what Paul says over and over again in these four spiritual blessings? Paul says that that capstone verse in verse 3, it begins the eulogy in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. 
in the heavenly places. Unbelievable. Every spiritual blessing, those words, in him, in Christ, in the beloved. Our union with Christ is what makes every one of those blessings available to us. There is no resurrection to eternal life with God outside of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for the future without Jesus Christ. There is certainly no living hope at all without our being bound to Jesus Christ eternally. Our living hope is through our gracious connection to Jesus Christ, our union with him and all that he has done. And Peter, in this case, makes much of what Christ did in his resurrection, defeating death, making our resurrection possible and guaranteed. We obviously don't have new bodies yet. Some of, some of our bodies are starting to over the hill now and start breaking apart, actually. We know we're actually going towards physical death. But because Christ truly was raised from the dead, because he really did walk out of the tomb in resurrection power, we too have spiritually been raised with Christ with the promise and guarantee that we will be raised in the last day when Christ comes again. That's the whole discussion Paul has in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23. The promise and the guarantee that we too will be raised to newness of life in Christ in the last day when Christ returns. Peter is encouraging us then, us who are in the midst of trials, to rejoice, to live unto God as though there is something more than just these various trials, but that there's a future hope for us of life. He is reminding us that God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We are dead no longer, separated from God no longer, set on the path to destruction and judgment no longer. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This resurrection is true. We, of course, would be willing to die for this truth. But it is thoroughly, as I said from the beginning, useful for us. Brothers and sisters, I, I want you to consider for a moment your own trials, the things that you are going through. Of course, the whole world, world over. But this message is not just about COVID-19, although it certainly is. Our time and place give us a specific platform to apply Peter's words. But I want you to consider your own trials before any of this ever came. Perhaps your work situation is poor. Or perhaps you don't have a job at all. Perhaps you live with constant physical pain or emotional pain. Perhaps you've been treated badly by your family and friends for various reasons. Perhaps no one's ever been a true friend to you. Perhaps you find yourself struggling to pay the bills. Perhaps it's the struggle within your own home with your spouse. Perhaps you are lonely. Perhaps you have lost one's loved ones to sickness and death. Perhaps you are suffering from unanswered questions and your mental grief and anxiety seems too much to bear in this life. In all these trials, may I encourage you with the words of Peter as Peter does in this text, to turn your eyes to your eternity in Jesus Christ, your living hope. More than just what's going on right now. This is not just a self-help class. I'm not just giving you the power of positive thinking. 
I don't have a magic pill that makes all the stuff that you're struggling with go away. Remember, Peter told us, you're going to experience various trials, and they will grieve you. This is the story of the glory of the gospel shining through in the midst of our struggle and darkness. This is the truth that you and I have a hope for an eternity with God that outshines every struggle, every heavy suffering, and every moment of despair that we encounter here on earth. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what each of you are suffering with, but I do know that you and I have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is our hope. That is your hope. That is the only hope that the world has if they would turn to Christ and experience the resurrection hope in Jesus. We may not have our best life here on this earth. In fact, I'll tell you right now, this will not be your best life. But I can tell you this, that you can live with joy and hope if you will ground your life in the truth of the King who resurrected from the grave. For those that do not know Jesus Christ, don't assume that this stuff is true for you. I want for a moment for you to listen to me very carefully. If you have not repented of your sin, if you do not love Jesus Christ, if he is not your Lord and Master and King, then you have no living hope. You have no hope for the future that it will get any better at all. In fact, what is coming is judgment against your sin, against your treason, against the God of the universe. Friend, may I call to you today to turn from your sin and to trust Jesus Christ alone, that you would repent, calling all of your sin that you have committed what Jesus calls it, sin, rebellion against God. Would you repent of it? Call to him, turn from your sin, and trust Christ alone to save you. He is a gracious, loving Savior. And you too can know this living hope that we do not have to be overly burdened and continually pressed down and defeated by our various trials, but that our hope resides in the one who beat death and who has secured for us eternal life with God. Brothers and sisters, remember this truth. Remember it and rejoice in the God of eternity who has given you and I this chance, not a chance, but a secured it in Jesus Christ, that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for an opportunity to think about this. Lord, it is not, it is not as though we don't think about this week in and week out. We celebrate this week in, week out on the Lord's Day on Sunday morning. But God, sometimes it does remind us and help us to spend more time thinking about these things. We ask, Lord, that we would be rejoicing in the fact that we have new life in Christ. We have, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. Lord, we look forward to the day that you will bring all things under Jesus Christ. Lord, that you will unify everything in you. We ask for your great love to help us today to live in light of that and to have hope in Jesus Christ. We love you. Lord, please bless your people today as they go forward. In Jesus' name we pray.